just bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the ability to worship you. And God, as we get ready to sing this song, Lamb of God, we see that you came to trade the debt we owed, the punishment for our sins. And your suffering was for our freedom. We can freely worship you now, and we can be in a right relationship with you because you paid the debt. Lord God, I, I see the other, the other uh, uh, scripture coming through these lyrics as well, that, that our shame was placed upon your shoulders. God, the reproach and the shame of the cross. The Bible says that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And God, you took that punishment for us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. May, may we fully try to grasp the gravity of that. But God, as we sing about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, may we not miss the fact that you are the Lion of Judah as well. You lain the Lamb, but you rose the Lion. The Lion stands among us today roaring in power and in might, giving salvation to each one of us, Lord God. You are the Lion. As we learn about the Antichrist today, the little G God of this world, Lord God, and those followers of Satan, we have the lion who roars, who speaks with his mouth creation, who speaks with his mouth judgment, who wins without lifting his arms, without getting off of his horse. He has victory. And as we sing to you, let us not miss that. Thank you.
Well, thank you, praise team, for leading us in a wonderful time of of worship. Today, we uh, we continue in our study of the book of Revelation, and I tell you, I have uh, I have been truly blessed because you know one of the things that the Bible does tell us is that those who uh, study this book it brings a blessing to your life. And and I have truly been blessed. Today we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 13. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles and, and turn with me there. The, um, you know, in the um, chaotic times that will prevail during the tribulation period, the world is going to long for a leader. They're going to long for someone that will uh, be powerful enough and influential enough to unite the divided nations of the world. They're going to be looking for someone that's going to give us a a sense of, of hope in all of the helplessness around us. Someone who's going to give us a sense of security in the time of all of this apprehension and uncertainty and fear. In fact, it kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? And people will be desperately longing for someone who is charismatic and strong and will bring back the world from the brink of disaster. And that longing will be fulfilled. That leader that the world has desired will come. And he will appear initially to be everything that the world has longed for. And he will bring the world into unity under his rule. He will turn out, though, to be far more than the world bargained for. And for a brief time, though he will bring peace and unity He will prove to be a dictator more powerful than any other in human history. This man is Antichrist. And Antichrist is the culmination of a long line of world dictators, of world leaders. What men like Alexander the Great and the Roman emperors of of ages past and men like Stalin and Hitler in the modern world could not do, this man will do. And he will rule the entire world, and he will receive its worship. Now, as his name indicates, he will be against Christ. He is anti Christ, that's what anti means. Anti means against, or it can mean in place of, instead of. And Antichrist will be both against Christ, that is opposing him, and he will also be seeking to take his place as Christ, as God, as the ruler of the world. And Jesus used the term pseudo-Christ, which means false Christ. Uh, And he warns in Mark chapter 13 and verse 6, he says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And he says in verse 22, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, 
he is there, do not believe him, for false Christ, pseudo-Christ, and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. You see, these imposters will culminate in the final Antichrist who will be more evil and more powerful than all the rest. And the description of, of Antichrist presented here in Revelation chapter 13 is the most gripping, thorough, and dramatic in all of Scripture. But it's important to understand that this is not a new teaching. It was not new to John's readers. Uh, in fact, John himself had taught about Antichrist previously. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, It is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5, after describing Antichrist and his activity, says to the Thessalonians, <coughs> he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You see, these people had heard about Antichrist, and they had heard it from John, they had heard it from Paul, they heard it from others. This is not something new. So, well, well, well it, this was common knowledge. Where did that knowledge come from? Well, the original source of the teaching about Antichrist comes from the prophet Daniel. And even when Jesus spoke about Antichrist in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, he quoted Daniel's prophecy. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through whom? Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Make the connection. This is the truth that has been being taught. And you see, in everything that John tells us here in Revelation 13 about the Antichrist aligns perfectly with what Daniel has already told us. So it's, it's important to understand that the book of Daniel is a, an essential source for understanding the truth about the Antichrist, and it is one that brings them together and unifies them. And so we're going to be referring to the book of Daniel quite often. I had to resist the temptation to make an excursus into the book of Daniel, and I have resisted, and so we're going to just kind of be referring to that. And so if you want more information, you can go and read uh, the book of Daniel, especially beginning in chapter 7 through chapter 11, and it'll give you a pretty good picture of some of these end-time things. So uh, uh, having said that, uh, let's look and see what uh, John has to say to us about the Antichrist here in Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Once you get this big picture in your mind, just 10 verses. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast." They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God 
to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of of coming before your throne of grace because of the work of the Lamb that has been slain, the blood that has been shed that covers the mercy seat, that covers all of our sin, that imputes to us the perfect righteousness of your Son, that enables us to come boldly before you and make our petitions. And Lord, we come today against all the accusations of the enemy. We come today in faith that you hear and that you believe that you respond to our prayers and lord we ask you for understanding about the truth of the antichrist and we pray lord that we might receive that truth for your intended purpose in our understanding it and lord i pray that today your people would be encouraged i pray that those who have not trusted you as savior today they would be willing to turn to you in faith and receive eternal life. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in these verses, John shows us seven characteristics of the Antichrist. But before we look at those characteristics, I want to ask you to consider the question, why do you think God would tell us about the Antichrist. What purpose would he have in making this known? I don't think it's to satisfy our curiosity about the things that have been mentioned in Scripture. The purpose is so that we will persevere, so that you will continue to be faithful in following Christ. Because you know what is going to happen, and you know the outcome of what is going to happen. And God calls us to persevere in our faith, knowing we have certain victory. But also knowing that at times it is very difficult. We face a real battle, but we can be victorious through Christ. So. Let's look at these seven characteristics of Antichrist. First of all, John tells us that Antichrist has the ancestry of the devil. He has the ancestry of the devil. And and in verse 1 there, the first part of that verse, he says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. You remember who the dragon is? He's the devil, right? Now, I need to let you know that that sentence is actually the last sentence of chapter 12. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, it makes that adjustment for you and makes it the last verse of chapter 12. If you have an authorized version, if you have a King James Version, it actually says, I stood on the shore. And that's because it's a a, a different uh, manuscript from which that was translated. The the oldest, the most uh, 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 reliable manuscripts would tell us that this is the dragon. That's the dragon is the antecedent. This is what's being talked about. The dragon at the end is standing there, looking out over the seashore, and and we pick up then here in the last part or the middle of verse 1, he says, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, 
having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, as John's vision unfolds, the dragon is standing on the seashore looking out over uh, the uh, sea, and this, this dragon is summoning the Antichrist. He's described as a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, the term beast was used earlier back in chapter 11 and verse 70, uh, 7 to describe the Antichrist as the first appearance. And, and see, the, the beast, this beast is not a domesticated animal. It's not even a wild animal. This, uh, this beast is a savage, vicious monster. To put it in today's terms, the beast is a monster. That's how we would think of it. It's the, the Antichrist, friends, is a monster in the worst sense of the term. And this beast is a person because he is described with the personal pronouns, he, his, and him. And, and Antichrist will be a ferocious terrifying, predatory personality. And the, but the beast is also represents Antichrist's kingdom as is reflected in the description of the horns and the, he- and the, and the heads and the diadems. You see, he, he has a whole kingdom through which he will express his uh, monstrous personality throughout the world. And, and Scripture uh, views the final empire of the Antichrist uh, as, as just being inseparable from its ruler. Much like Hitler is inseparable from the Third Reich, the beast and his whole system are inseparable. Now, the sea from which the beast arises uh, is used to picture two aspects of Antichrist's origin. Uh, first, it says the sea. The sea uh, generally refers to the Gentile nations. Uh, in, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, we read, The waters, or the sea, which you saw the harlots, uh, on which the, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now that is a, it's consistent throughout the prophets, the use of a, the sea to picture the nations. But in Revelation 11 and verse 7, it says, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. In other words, humanly, the Antichrist will be a man that arises from the nations. But at some point in his life, he is going to be indwelt by a powerful demon from the abyss. This is a demon-possessed man who will be a gifted orator, an intellectual genius. Uh, he will be a person of uh, great charisma and charm, and he is going to be very intelligent. He is going to be an incredible leader. These are all things that, that Daniel would tell us about this person. But, you see, when you add to that, the, the, the supernatural, the demonic power of Satan, this man becomes a superhuman. And he is going to look to people like a superman. And he is going to deceive so many people because of this. He, but he will be the, the consummate wickedness that we have seen in the world. See, no one in human history will be more completely the devil's child than Antichrist. And you say, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, if you're not sure about that, John wants to make sure you know that. He pulls out a picture, a photograph of Antichrist. And, and, he, and, he, and he says, I want you to be able to see the family resist, resemblance here. In verse uh, 1, he tells us this, that he has ten horns and seven horns, or excuse me, and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. Okay, there's your photograph 
of Antichrist. Now let's take sure, look take a look at the photograph of Daddy. Revelation chapter twelve verse three: A great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. You see the family resemblance. Who is this? Who's that? Well, the, that clearly tells us that this is the serpent of old, the devil, the Satan. This is, this is who we are looking at here. Antichrist has the spiritual DNA of the devil. No one has been more clearly the, 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 the spawn of Satan. He's Rosemary's baby, if you will. And Satan says to Antichrist, I am your father. Now, horns in Scripture symbolize strength and power, both for attacking and for defense. And in this passage, they represent the the great power of the kings who will rule under Antichrist's authority. So he has a whole system under him, a hierarchy in place. And then 10 is, fits the imagery of the fourth beast that we find in Daniel chapter 7. And it's symbolic of the number representing all the world's political and military power. You might think of it as just world dominion. And 10 is that number, the human number, of, 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 of encompassing all. We're talking about world dominion. And Antichrist will rise from among the, the ten horns, it says there, and, and, and these ten will not merely see, lead just a, a local coalition, but they're going to re- reign over a universal coalition, the entire world. And they're going to rule at the same time. All these men will be operative at the same time. So, so Daniel describes this final coalition in chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. I don't have time to, to read all of those things so that you can see them as clearly, but uh, as he defines them there, he describes the, the Roman Empire. And you remember the Roman Empire in the image that Daniel saw? He saw a large image, and at the bottom, and the feet and the toes were made of iron and of clay, partly of iron and partly of clay. That's a picture of the Roman Empire. And what John will tell us is that the the empire that Antichrist will rule will be like the Roman Empire, only far greater in its in its ruling and its savageness. Uh, it'll be much more than a European confederacy, it will cover the entire world. That's what he's telling us. And ultimately, Antichrist's power, his empire, is going to be crushed, Daniel tells us, with a stone cut out without hands. That's a picture of Christ. Though he will rise to world empire, and it will look like he's taken over completely forever, the Bible tells us, Christ will come and crush his kingdom. That's encouraging, right? And listen, that's important for us to know. That is important for us to know. Because you see, that's what helps us persevere. Right now, in this world, in this nation, it looks to me like evil is really taking advantage is really rising to the top. It looks that's what it looks to me. And it's 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 scary and it's difficult. But listen, we know the outcome. We know how it's going to end up. And so we need to continue to be faithful. We need to continue to persevere. See, John also tells us that in addition this beast has seven heads and the seven heads as we're going to see when we get to chapter 17, represents successive world powers, world empires. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the final kingdom of Antichrist. 
And then there's 10 diadems. And again, this is reflective of those 10 uh, kings who have 10 crowns. Uh, they, they're going to rule over this empire. And also, John tells us that on the beast heads, it says, were blasphemous names. Now, I want you to get the picture. You know what, you know what the Roman emperors did, what many of the Roman emperors did in that time? They said they were God. And they required of the people to bow down to them and say, Caesar is Lord. You remember that? And then if you look through history, you have very all these times when, when people have, world leaders have, in essence, taken to themselves a godlike status and want to be worshipped and want to be honored. And uh, they, they dishonor God. When they do that, that's what blasphemy is, is taking to yourself what is, for, what is God's and, and making that claim. That's why they wanted to crucify Jesus, because he claimed to be God. They said it's blasphemy. And, and you see, they're going to follow the pattern of their master, Antichrist, who according to 2 Thessalonians 2.4, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Antichrist clearly, you see, has the ancestry of the devil. And then he, the, another characteristic, he has the authority of the dragon. Verse 2 says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now the beast that John saw incorporated the characteristics of the three animals that Daniel saw in his vision recorded in chapter 7. And there he saw a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And these were all animals that were just simply common to Palestine. These animals dramatically emphasize the characteristics of the kingdoms that they represent. And the lion symbolized the fierce, dominant power of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the, uh, the, the bear pictures the ferocity and the, and the strength of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the, the leopard represents the swiftness which, which the, the Greeks conquered the world under uh, Alexander the Great. And then, and then John lists these three animals, the same three animals that D Daniel saw, in reverse order. Because you see, he's looking back in time at what Daniel saw. Daniel is looking forward. So Daniel names them in chronological order in which they appeared. Uh, uh, John, looking back, records them in reverse order. And Daniel, like Daniel, uh, John also saw this fourth kingdom that no animal could symbolize. There's not an animal that can represent this. And, and so he just calls it a beast, a monster. And listen to how he describes it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. He says, After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and devoured and crushed and trampled down and remained with its feet, or the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, Again, the beast that Daniel saw represented the Roman Empire. And like that fourth beast, uh, Antichrist, final empire, is going to be a composite, really, you see, of all the nations before it. This is a picture that only Antichrist will be able to pull together the resources and the power of the entire world and control and dominate it. And so it's going to incorporate all the ferocity and the viciousness and the swiftness and the strength of the world empires. Now, this leader, man, he is going to be unparalleled in history. Nobody is going to be able to withstand him, you know, because it says in verse 2 that the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. In other words, Satan will empower 
Antichrist. The dragon works his power through this beast, using him to make war against God and his people. Not even the holy angels are going to intervene. Because Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that God is going to remove the restraint. And God is going to allow Satan, he's going to allow Antichrist to exert himself and move to this position of dominance in the world. And Antichrist will share Satan's throne just as the true Christ shares the Father's throne. Antichrist is going to possess this incredible power, this incredible authority over the entire world. And he's going to be unrestrained to do whatever he wants to do. Evil. Evil being released upon the world to do whatever it wants to do. Now, friend, if you want something to be afraid of, that's something to be afraid of. And this will be Satan's last and greatest attempt to reign as Christ. But like all of his other attempts, it will be thwarted and Christ will destroy him. You know, you know some, sometimes people find it, when they do this kind of thing, they find it just incredible that, to think of the idea that one individual in our world today could ever rise to that place, you know, of, of absolute power. But if you, if you think about it, there are really a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, examples or parallels in human history, albeit much less, but a lesser scale. But, but inevitably, what happens when there is turmoil, when there's, there's panic, when there's trouble, when, when people are scared, when people are confused, when people are hurting, this is the prime time for someone to rise to power and to be the answer to people's seemingly impossible questions, to be the solution to their problems. And he will use this power of Satan initially enough to, to draw people in to cause them to believe that he's the source. And then once he has power, he has freedom to do whatever he wants to do without consideration for what other people think. I mean, for example, Hitler took advantage of the chaotic economic uh, uh, situation in Germany after World War I. And people were hurting and people were needing, and he promised the German people that under his leadership, their downtrodden nation would be, again, rise to a place of prominence and power and wealth. And, and desperate for a way out in their dilemma, they began to believe his message. And, and eventually the Nazi party grew so strong that it appointed Hitler as chancellor of Germany. And from there, he went on to seize absolute power over that nation and sought to gain control over the world. And that's just one little picture of the Antichrist in the future. So he has the authority of the dragon. He also has, the, has a claim from deception. Verse 3 says, I saw one of his heads as if had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. There's going to be a shocking event that is going to allow Antichrist to solidify his hold upon the world. And John saw, he says, one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Now, I'll tell you that what that means there has been much debated. And there are a lot of crazy ideas, which I don't have time uh, to tell you about. But let me tell you the way I see it. The head whose fatal wound will be healed can only be the future Antichrist. And you see, whether his death is real or not, or it's fake, is not clear. Now, some say that Antichrist is really killed, and and God, for his own purposes, allows him to be resurrected. I strongly doubt that. 
Because I don't believe Satan has the power of resurrection. Only God has the power of resurrection. What I believe is going to happen is that Satan is going to have a fake death and resurrection and it's going to be carried out by the false prophet who the Bible says it perpetrates lying wonders. In fact, he says in, in, in verse uh, 14 of this chapter, he says, And he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Now, if you put this together with what the Apostle Paul tells us about the Antichrist time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, The coming of the lawless one, that's Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and what? False signs and wonders and with all deception. If there's one thing we know about Satan, he is a liar and a deceiver. And he is going to pull off a fake death and resurrection. And he is going to fool the world into thinking that, man, this guy must be God. And and some people even say that uh, beyond the idea of a resurrection and him being Christ, some people think he's going he's gonna to be a reincarnation. Uh, and I don't know about that, but I, I think it's very clear that he's, he's, he's counterfeiting Christ's death and resurrection here. Now, and since uh, the tribulation time, you see... Uh, in that time, the world is going to experience death on an unprecedented scale. And here is one who is going to appear to even be invulnerable to over have overcome death. And that is going to just really, oh man, here's the guy that can deal with death. Our real problem, you know? So what happens? Uh, he, he, he has this acclaim. By deception. It also tells us, number four, that he has adoration as a deity. Verse four says they, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? The world's fascination with Antichrist is going to quickly turn into worship, and he's going to demand that worship. As we've already seen, Second Thessalonians 2, 4 tells us that he will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as God. He's not content with just a claim. He has to have adoration. He's not content with just uh, respect. He wants reverence not content with just to be a wonder he wants worshiped and he again second thessalonians 2 10 says that those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved they will be deceived into worshiping him i know it's the lost people going to worship him not only will he deceive the uh unbelievers but it's going to lead to them worshiping the dragon. You see, because this is really what Satan has wanted all along. He has wanted to be worshipped. And in fact, the, the, uh, it tells us that this, promotion, this uh, uh, worship is going to be promoted by the Antichrist, the false prophet. In verse 12, he says he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship Antichrist whose fatal wound was healed. So he's deceiving the world, making them think that this Antichrist is something. And behind it, Satan is receiving worship. And then people are going to look at the Antichrist and they're going to say, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? You see, this this blasphemy, Referring to Antichrist in superlative language that only should be reserved for God is going to uh, to uh, d- delude the world, and he is going to 
present himself as a God. A God. Now, the, the, the implied answer to both of those questions is no one. Who's like him? Nobody. And so politically, military, militarily, and religiously, Antichrist is going to reign supreme and unchallenged. He has adoration as a deity. But fifth, he also has the adoration, has the arrogance of desecration. Verse 5 tells us, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, I don't know if you see this, but Antichrist is not content merely to receive adoration, to be worshipped. He has to tear down everything associated with God. His goal is to desecrate anything and everything associated with his competition, God. And so he builds himself up speaking arrogant words. How great I am. He's making the speeches. I am great. And then at the same time, he is blaspheming God. He is tearing God down. He is uh, saying everything ugly and, and, and nasty that he can about God. And, and it says he's des- desecrating God's name, his tabernacle, and his people. Friends, the devil despises God. He'll do anything to, to disparage him and to keep other people from worshiping. And when you see people tearing God down, when you see people trying to turn other people away from worship, you know where the source of that is. That's, that's the devil. And, the, and um, Antichrist blasphemy uh, will not be subtle. It's going to be very overt, out there. It says that he's, again, he's going to take his seat in the temple. He's going to display himself as being God. And this is reminiscent of Satan's original desire when he fell from heaven. Isaiah tells us that he said in his heart, I will make myself like the Most High. Daniel also predicted that the Antichrist will be characterized by arrogant and blasphemous words. In Daniel 7 and verse 8, he says he, he will have a mouth uttering great boast and that the Antichrist will speak out against the Most High and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And amazingly, God in his sovereignty will allow Antichrist to blaspheme and to give full expression to his wickedness. It says for 40 Two months. 42 months is three and a half years. That's that last half of the tribulation period. That's right after the abomination of desolation is set up in the mid, at the midpoint of the tribulation. And it's from there on that he is going to be blaspheming God. And notice this. God in his sovereignty allows him to do that. It was given to him. You see, Antichrist and Satan will be allowed to operate within the limits set within for them until the truer of the universe comes. And he tells us number six, the sixth characteristic, he has the agenda of a dictator. Verse seven, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. See, Satan, uh, Antichrist is not going to be all talk. He is going to take action, and he is going to be a deadly personality. Once again, we see that he can only do, though, what is allowed. he is allowed to do. He's given permission by Almighty God because God never relinquishes absolute control. But because they will refuse to worship him, it says that Satan is going to make war with the saints and overcome them. So believers are the ones that Satan is going to especially express his wrath toward, is those who worship God, because he wants absolute worship. 
And so he will perceive them as being a threat, it says, to his authority over every tribe and, and people and tongue and nation. And the result will be a worldwide slaughter of God's people. We've already seen that. You remember when we looked at the seal and we saw the martyrs? And they were saying, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to allow this to go on? And Daniel also predicted the widespread martyrdom of God's people. He says in chapter 7 and verse 25, the Antichrist will wear down the saints of the highest one, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You know what that is? That's the three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation. And this per, this persecution is going to begin in earnest with the abomination of desolation. Remember what Jesus said? When you see that, man, get out of town. Better run. And Antichrist, you see, can make war with the, with the saints. He can overcome them. He can kill them. But let me tell you what he cannot do. He cannot destroy their faith. He cannot take their salvation. And in this world in which we live, friends, people can come against us as Christians. They can overcome us. They can put us in prison. They can kill us. But if you know Christ, they cannot take your salvation. As, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ will never allow your salvation, your faith, to be destroyed. See, Antichrist has a, an agenda, the agenda of a dictator, and he will destroy anything that stands in the way of that. But we see the final thing here. He has the admiration of the doomed. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now the phrase, uh, all who dwell on the earth is used throughout Revelation to describe people who are lost, the unbelieving. And this verse makes that especially clear because, you see, it includes everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. These are those who are doomed to eternal torment in the lake of fire along with Satan and his angels and the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're all going to be thrown in there together, and all who follow them are going to be there as well. And so they're doomed. Now, who will worship the Antichrist? All the unbelievers. But you know what? This verse, it's, it's amazing. This verse should be an encouragement to us. But in reality, this verse bothers people a lot. Because when they hear that God wrote the names of some people in the book of life from the foundation of the world, it sounds to them like that God somehow decided their salvation before there was even a world and they have no choice in it. And that bothers people. They say, that's fatalistic. That's unfair. Now, understand this very carefully. Okay? Let's consider this and think about this. 2 Thessalonians is a passage which is given to us in the context of the Antichrist. That's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. And listen, he tells us that all who perish will perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Do you understand that the reason that they are doomed to the lake of fire for all eternity is because they refused to receive the truth that God in his love 
has revealed to them. That's why everybody goes to hell. Because you're already condemned. And when you refuse to receive the truth of salvation, you go where you were always destined to go. Now, remember John 3.16, the words of Jesus himself? For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, who would that be? Whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but will have what? Eternal life. Jesus continues in that thought in verse 18, and he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Condemned already. That's where we all are in this world. We're all already condemned. And what does God call on us to do? He calls on us to believe on His Son. And when, he, and when we believe on His Son, then we are no longer condemned. Because, and why are you condemned? Because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the same thing. The reason that people are doomed is because they refuse the light, the revelation of the truth so as to be saved. So friend, if you go to hell, it's because you chose not to accept the truth that God has revealed to you today. It's not because your name wasn't written sometime before you were born. Your name wasn't written because God already knew you would refuse that truth. You're doomed because you do not believe. You're doomed because you love your sin more than life. And you will not let go of it. Now here's a, so, so always in the Bible what we say, the elect are saved by their faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved by faith. And, and the, un, the non-elect are lost because they refuse the gospel. That's the truth. Now how, how are we to respond to Antichrist? Here's a good question. How are we to respond? Well, listen to what he says in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance of the faith of the saints. What's he saying? Friends, he's saying that some of you are going to go to prison for your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are going to be tortured for your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are going to be executed because of your faith in Jesus Christ. What should, how should you respond? You should persevere. This is the faith of the saints. This is the true faith of the saints. This is how saints respond to what the devil brings into our lives. We trust God. We persevere. And that word persevere means is hupomane. It's one of my favorite words. Sometimes ask, some people ask me, how are you? And I say hupomane. That means steadfast endurance. It means to remain immovable in the face of difficulty and hardship. Even when we are being persecuted, God calls upon us to persevere. God calls on us to be faithful to Him and to trust Him in the midst of all that comes. That's, what he, that's why He tells us all this truth that He's given us about the Antichrist. It's not because it's fascinating. It is. It's not to satisfy our curiosity. It, it does. But it's so that we would know these things are coming 
And these things, though we look at them now and we're looking at them in their ultimate capacity in the future, they are still happening in this very day, in this very moment, in a lesser way. And it requires from us in every age a response of perseverance and faith. How do we respond? By faith. And we persevere. How about you? Are you persevering? Are you remaining faithful? Are you trusting God? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? The Lamb who was slain? The Lamb who was slain in your place? The Lamb who went to the cross and took your sin upon Himself? The Lamb who was buried and and then three days later rose from the dead and is alive? The only one who can overcome death? Not the fake Antichrist, death and resurrection, but the one and only who can die on the cross for our sins and then raise from the dead? Is that the one you have your trust in? That's where you ought to have your trust is in the Lamb who was slain. And not only slain, but risen and coming again. He is coming again. So be faithful. And you are dismissed.